Good morning, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Rick Brown. Thank you for joining us on today's Seek First podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Take a minute to subscribe to the Seek First podcast. Thanks, everyone. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready. Grab your Bible, prepare your heart and mind. Let's go. Hey, good evening, everybody. Great to be with you on this, the afterglow of the 4th of July. And what a blessing to just enjoy our liberty and our freedom. We are going through the Anchored series. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 21. If you have a Bible, make your way to Acts chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and our servants team will get you one. And we are going to look at our message, Explosive Commitment. We've been looking at the explosive power of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and it takes on different dimensions and in different seasons, and also when there's different demands placed upon us. And tonight, we're going to jump into the boat with Paul the Apostle as he's heading back to Jerusalem to bring the good news of all that God has done. But along the lines, we're going to look at a commitment that he has about his plans that is a bit of a question mark. There's a challenge through the Holy Spirit, through believers along the way to question whether this is really God's best for him. And we'll look at that when we get to it. But we want to look at the commitment the Holy Spirit empowers us in our plans and in our relationships. Because ultimately, we're moving through life, and we've got a plan, we've got an agenda, we've got a work schedule, but then there's people in our life, and how those commitments play out under the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Because ultimately, I do not want plans in my life that are not from God. How about you? I've discovered that they just come to nothing. The psalmist said it so well, that uh, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman watches in vain. Meaning that you're always wanting to surrender to God's plan and invite God's leadership into the direction of your life. But there are those times when you feel strongly about something and you're not sure if it's the Lord or it's you. The Lord and I have a deal in that situation. Please, whatever it takes to stop me from stupidity, please do. Please intervene and my stupidity, because sometimes I just simply don't know what's best. And I can't see the future, so what might be on my radar or in my heart may not be God's best to bring forth the the work of the kingdom. And we see that in this passage of scripture as we follow along. Hey, let's stand together and read this passage. We're gonna read these 14 verses uh, here in Acts chapter 21 to get us going. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to cause. The following day to Rhodes and from there to Patera, and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. And for the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days, They told Paul, notice, they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, 
we came to Ptolemais, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied, and as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we had heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he, had not, when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Father, we ask that your will would be done in our hearts and our minds as you lead us by your spirit and empower us, Lord, in the commitments, in our relationships, in our life, and empower us with the plans by giving us clear direction and thwarting those plans that are not of you. God, give us wisdom tonight, we pray, for all who are listening to this message. Lord, speak to their hearts. May they hear that voice behind them as they turn to the right or the left, that this is the way. Walk in it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We first look at a map that pops up here, and you can see the journey that Paul the Apostle is on. He's headed with breakneck speed, old school sailing that is, from port to port to port. And in these ports, wherever there's believers, he goes and hangs out with them. And it's a sweet thing that no matter where you go and you drop into a port or a community or a city and having went on mission trips uh, throughout 30 years of ministry, you go to a place, you don't know these people, and you spend a couple hours with them and you feel like you've known them forever because they know the Lord and you know the Lord and there's this fellowship or this communion along the way. But when they ended up there entire and a ship was going to unload its cargo, they found some believers. Now they don't know these people. Right? I mean, they're believers. How do they find the believers? They just ask in the community, the port city there, hey, are there any Christians in this town or anybody that's walking with the Lord Jesus? And they get uh, some directions and they show up at their house or they show up wherever they're meeting. And it says in verse 4, finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. In these few verses, with a seven-day relationship, these believers filled with the same Holy Spirit that's leading Paul the Apostle through the Spirit. This seems like the strong, direct direction, right? Do not go up to Jerusalem. You know when people aren't getting it, you think if you talk slower and louder, somehow it's going to be conveyed. Oftentimes when you travel and somebody, you know, there's a communication barrier. It's funny how we get louder and slower <laughs> just to insult the people. Because it's a very awkward situation. But they communicate with Paul very clearly that the, the Spirit told him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, at this point, this is where two parts of thinking separate. Those who would put no um, fault on Paul's part by not listening, simply because when you remember when Peter spoke to Jesus and Jesus told him, Peter, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to be crucified. 
And Peter said, not so, Lord, far be it from you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. He rebuked Peter from somehow discouraging him from his course to the cross. And those who would support Paul, and I'm, I'm kind of 50-50 on this deal here, because I understand that. There are times that God puts things in my heart that the people around me are saying, don't do this, Rick. But it's so strong inside of me, I cannot but do it. I remember when I was going to go plant the church in Idaho Falls, Idaho, which is a very Mormon community. And uh, they have a temple there, and the town when I went there was probably 55% LDS within the 50,000 people. And if you went a mile outside of town into the rural, it's more like 70%. And if you go just 30 miles up the road, it's Rexburg, and it's 90% with a town of 25,000. The Mormons in eastern Idaho rule the roost. They dominate everything. They dominate the political scene. They dominate the education scene. Every school, every elementary, middle school, and high school has a seminary. They build them this way. They build the high school, and they build the seminary right next door in a neighborhood around it. And the kids are released uh, from school to go get an hour of indoctrination through their school every school day five days a week, into the Mormon things, those who sign up for it. It's a very strong enclave of Mormonism. Now, most people say, I know some Mormons, and, and I say, here in Southern California, there's a different variety of Mormon up yonder, okay? My friend that was from Southern California, a pastor, came to visit me for four days, and after hanging out and talking to the people in town, he came to me and he said, you need a passport to come to this community, now, it's not so much now because it's diluted by Gentiles, non-Mormons, moving into the area and it growing substantially. But when I told my mentor and my pastor, hey, I feel like the Lord's calling me to go to Idaho Falls, he looked at me and he said, you are going where Satan's throne is. Don't go, Rick. Now, the Lord had already ministered in my heart that I was to go there. Now, this is the same pastor that previously, when I had planted a church and the Lord led me to hand it off to a guy and go to San Jose and help Don McClure for a season, he looked at me and said, look what, he said, Rick, look what God has done. You have a building. You have 30, 50 people. You have a radio station. All this happened within 10 months. This is the work of God. You can't leave this. He said, I would not, I would not leave this place unless an angel stood on the hood of my car and told me not to go or told me to go. I knew the Lord was leading me then, and I knew the Lord was leading me to go to Idaho Falls. But God's spirit inside of me was so strong, even the person that was my mentor that had trained me up in the Lord when he spoke otherwise, I could not do what he wanted me to do. Now, having said that, if that is the case in Paul's heart, that he knows he's going to Jerusalem, he knows he's going to suffer, he knows that he believes in his heart this is God's plan for him. This is his crucifixion moment, so to speak. Like Jesus going, he's, Jesus set his face, it says when he was going to Jerusalem, like flint, he was going. Now, Having said that, and if that's true, kudos to Paul with a lot of voices telling him to do otherwise, he went. But looking at the other side of the story, according to verse 4, it sounds very strong that the Spirit just told him, don't go. Now that's a little different. So if you're going against what the Spirit is saying through some new believers, and you want to go anyway, now you have a different conundrum. I'm going to go anyway, even though God's telling me not to go. Well, all of us have been stubborn and pig-headed at times. 
Even God's servants can be stubborn and pig-headed. Did you know that? Even the great Paul the Apostle can be stubborn and pig-headed. Even moi, Rick Brown, I know it's a shock, can be stubborn and pig-headed. So I share those two thoughts because as we go through this, you think it through in your own mind. Maybe you're in a season of life right now where you feel like the Lord's leading you to do something, and some people that love the Lord, filled with the Spirit, have a different word for you. You have to sort that out. You have to pray that through. You have to get yourself in a place that you can really confidently move ahead. Now, this is not only a place of strong warning with these new believers of seven days, but it's also a very tender moment because it says when Paul and them were going to go load up on the ship, the, the wives and the children and the men, they all went out with Paul. They walked outside the city to the shoreline. They all knelt down and they prayed together. What a sweet picture of these believers that loved him so much, and yet they're going to depart, probably never to see him again after this seven-day interaction. But we see a commitment here that Paul has to his plans. He's planning to go to Jerusalem. Now, there's a little uh, vignette we're going to come back to in verses 8 and 9. But let's continue on and hear the rest of the story because it gets stronger. Here's some believers he doesn't know. They have a word from the Lord. Don't go up to Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit says. But in verse 10 it says, And we stayed many days. And a certain prophet, this is them going to Caesarea, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, Agabus is a heavy hitter. He had prophesied back in chapter 11 that there was going to be a drought, a famine in the land of Judea, throughout all the land. And the disciples up in Antioch took up an offering because they believed this word from the Lord, and they took it down to help the believers in Judah. This guy is a prophet extraordinaire in the New Testament sense. He has a great record for declaring this is what God's saying, this is what God did. And here this Agabus, when he comes and he hangs out with Paul, he, in very prophetic, graphic nature and drama, he takes Paul's belt off of him. And then he ties up his own hands and ties it around his own feet. And there he's bound. Can you imagine me coming up to you, taking your belt off you, and then sitting down and, and saying, thus says the Lord, the man that owns this belt, this is what they're going to do to him in Jerusalem. You get the picture? That's very dramatic, don't you think? And the Holy Spirit is leading Agabus to do this, as it says in verse 11, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit's saying this, it's not Agabus, it wasn't those believers back there entire. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now just because, once again, if we're going to err on the side of giving Paul confidence, if all these people are just telling him something that awaits him and that's God's will for him, hey, you're going to go to jail, you're going to be bound, that's what's going to happen, Paul. Or if it is an opportunity to dissuade him, to persuade him otherwise, to divert, divert. <laughs> you know, sometimes have, have you, ever, you have your, uh, your British female GPS talking to you driving down the road and you miss your turn and it's like recalculate 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 sometimes you got to recalculate when you got lost 
So you would think that Paul now is going to weigh in, and he has respect for this Agabus, and the people now that they hear this in verse 12, they join in in Agabus's strong warning. When we heard these things, Luke includes himself. The author of the Gospel of Luke, who is also the author of the book of Acts, was there in the room watching this, and he includes himself. When we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Don't go. You're going to go to jail. You're going to be arrested. Some months ago, last year, when uh, Pastor Art was here from Canada, Pawlowski, uh, Pastor Art just got out of jail for, up in um, Canada from 51 days for teaching, basically, uh, or speaking to the rally of the truckers. You remember that they had to sit in there at the Montana-Canadian border? And he went there, and they told him not to go, but he was going to go bring them a word of encouragement from the Lord. So he spoke to them, and so they put him in jail for 51 days for breaking, I can't remember the name of the law, but it's basically an infrastructure law that if somebody attacks some key part of the infrastructure, like an oil pipeline or something, nobody's ever been charged under this statute in the history of Canada. And they chose to use this statute to charge a preacher for preaching to these people. He just got out of jail. But when he was here, I was talking with Pastor Art. He spoke in the church. Him and I did a couple of live streams together. And I was speaking with Pastor Art. And I said, Pastor Art, you can, no doubt, you could file for a, t a political asylum, for religious asylum to the United States of America because he was going from coast to coast and, and sounding the alarm for people to look up to Canada what is going on because what's up north is going to flow downhill down south, across the border. He was trying to warn America. He's waking up America. And I told him, Pastor Hart, I said, why don't you file for political asylum, religious persecution, and come to America and just keep this going, right? I mean, you're going to have tremendous support. He goes, no. It is my calling to go to Canada and to go to prison. He told me straight up. And no doubt people along the way are all of them saying the same thing that I was. Now, I'm not saying that was a word from the Lord. I was simply having a curious conversation with him. And I never sense, when the Lord speaks strongly through me, I sense that. And I go, hey, you know, I really feel like the Lord has a word for you. But it wasn't that. I was more curious, like, you're already down here. It was a miracle that he actually got out through his passport to get out of the country. Because, they're, you know, when he got ready, after four months of speaking in America... His lawyer, he said, now, I, I don't want to get arrested when I get to the airport. So he, his lawyer called the authorities and said, is there any outstanding warrants? Is there going to be a problem for me, uh, Pastor Art, coming to town? They said, no, no. They, the officials lied to their face. But as soon as he landed, they had him on the tarmac and arrested him and hauled him off. Though they lied to him. His lawyer asked before he came home if they wanted to arrest him. That was a separate issue. Now, Paul the Apostle has this strong word, and they begin to plead with him. All the other voices begin to plead with him, and Paul's response is classic. If this is God's will for him to go and be arrested, this is epic to resist this kind of an emotional plea. <laughs> if it is not God's will, it is the most pig-headed move of his life. He's still a man. I leave the, you're, you're the jury. You can decide for yourself where Paul the Apostle is. How does he respond in verse 13? Then Paul answered, 
What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he, he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. That's all you can do, right? You try to speak to somebody, you try to minister to somebody. They're very strong in their persuasion. Oftentimes, people would come into my office as a pastor, and they're looking, people are oftentimes looking for me to make their decision for them. They want me to decide what they should do, sell this house, take this job, marry this person. I learned very early on, people only ask me that so that they have a scapegoat to blame once it goes south, right? If I say, take that job, marry that person, then the, and they do, and it goes bad, you see them coming back in and going, hey, you told me. I says, I don't make any decisions for people. You gotta live with your own decisions. You make your own decisions. I'm having a hard enough time letting little Ricky Brown know what God wants me to do, let alone you guys, right? But in this moment, with, with Paul making his decision, they, that's all he can do is you just guess, well, okay. That's how you feel about it? That's, that's what the Holy Spirit's doing inside of you? The Holy Spirit's doing all this around you but this is what he's doing in you? Okay. Now, why does it matter? And I want to give this word of encouragement. If Paul was in God's will, he had already told him that he's going to Rome. Okay, Paul the Apostle is on his way to Rome. That's, that, he knows that. And he's going to go to Rome. Now, if he's in God's will, God's going to take him as a prisoner to Rome. Now, if he's outside of God's will, maybe God had a different plan for him to go without handcuffs to Rome, but still the plans to go to Rome. And the beautiful thing about this in God's grace, from my perspective, is that no matter when, even at those times, not no matter, but even in those times, that we're making a decision that may get us into trouble, and we're surrendered to the Lord all through the process, Jesus never leaves us. Isn't that great news? Aren't you glad that when, <laughs> when you make a mistake, the Lord doesn't just check out and leave you, <laughs> leave you alone? He's still with you. He's still with you to lead you through the process. It tells us here in a couple of chapters, he gets arrested. Everything that Agabus said and the other believers said happened. He was bound. He was in chains. And he's in prison at night after preaching the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem, which was his passionate goal. And this is what Jesus says to him. But the following night, Acts 23, 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. There's no rebuke from Jesus. There's no correction from Jesus. Jesus doesn't come to him and say, I told you so. I tried to avert this. I sent all my servants to tell you. And so in this moment, the Lord just says, you know, we're still gonna get you from point A to point B. From Jerusalem to Rome, it's all right. You know, all through the scriptures, God's servants make mistakes. And I don't know, maybe you haven't made one lately to be very glaring in your own soul, but Abraham, when the Lord told him, Abraham, he told him at the age of 75, you're gonna have a son. That son's gonna come from your barren wife, Sarah. Now that promise came and so he kept waiting. 25 years went by. Now after 25 years, you would think that promise was just a little bit dusty, right? 
Because if God promises me something, I'm, I'm ready for it right now. In the, in the husband-wife arena that may become uh, husband, I mean, uh, mothers and fathers, you're waiting for it monthly, right? For the wife to miss her monthly cycle. So 12 times a year. No. Now times 25 <laughs> of anticipation, correct? And so finally after 20, now the Lord tells us why he did it. Now Mo, he didn't tell Moses, I mean, excuse me, he didn't tell Abraham this. Paul tells us in Romans chapter four that God was waiting for Abraham, his body physically, and Sarah to be as good as dead. Meaning they can't, there's nothing that can produce anything out of this old man and this old woman. So that God could do a miracle and it would be a miracle child and God would get the glory. But they didn't know that. All they knew was a promise happened 25 years ago and they said, maybe we're gonna help out. I got this handmaiden, Sarah, uh, Hagar, and she's from Egypt, and why don't, because she's my slave, why don't you just have sex with her, she'll have the child, that child will be Abraham, and they'll adopt it, she'll basically be a surrogate. And they had their own human plan since God wasn't coming through with his. It's funny when we, we try to come up with our own plan instead of God's, isn't it? It doesn't always go well, as Hagar could testify that her and uh, Sarah, though fireworks were going to happen. Even if Paul made a mistake here, at the end of it, when he's arrested and in chains and discouraged at night, the Lord says, I'm with you. He stood with him. Jesus stood with him and said, we're going to Rome, Paul. We're headed to Rome. Now, a little vignette that we skipped from a commitment to plans was a commitment to families. And in verses 8 and 9, it's just a verse that stands out actually two verses, but the one that really encapsulates the thought. It says that when they had come to Caesarea, they entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. That was one of the seven servants in Acts chapter 6, along with Stephen and five other guys that were waiting tables. And they stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Philip was a hero of New Testament proportion. He was a servant to the widows in chapter 6. He goes out and he preaches passionately after the persecution that Saul of Tarsus brought. He goes to Samaria and an incredible revival happens. People are getting healed. Demons are being cast out. Philip is rocking the house of Samaria. And in the midst of that revival, the Lord sends him down to Ethiopia. And he shares the gospel with a very powerful guy who is the treasurer of the Candace of Ethiopia, the, the queen of Ethiopia. And and he shares the gospel with him, and he gets saved. And after he baptizes the Ethiopia in some pond out in the desert of Gaza, it says the spirit took him away. Supernaturally, he whisked him away. The Ethiopian unit comes up for one of those good wet baptism hugs, and he's gone. And he finds himself in Azotus, but then he lands in Caesarea. It appears that he stays in Caesarea for the next 20 years because now this is 20 years later. He's still the evangelist. He's com a committed family man. He has a wife, and he has four virgin daughters. <laughs> a man surrounded. You know any fathers like this? They have all, all girls. A wife, all daughters, and even their dog is female. That guy's thankful just for a mailbox out in front because there's no other 
There's no other masculinity around. But here he is, Philip, he has four virgin daughters, and these four virgin daughters, it speaks two things, really, really three thoughts come to me from one simple verse. Here's an incredible gifted evangelist and a gifted servant of God, and yet he didn't lose his family in the process. This is a big deal in ministry. Because it's pretty heady stuff to be a preacher because if you're gone every night of the week and if you're gone every, you know, just constantly for your family and you come home and the family or if the wife or the kids ask, where have you been? There's no more powerful comeback than serving God. That's where I've been. But the reality is a lot of people never figure out how to serve God and to serve their wife and their children as well. And Philip obviously was committed to this process. He's not only committed to the Lord, he's committed to a wife because you do not raise, I don't care what generation is, you don't raise four virgin daughters that speaks to sexual purity and that also prophesy and are filled with the Holy Spirit without a commitment to your family. You see that investment, no doubt, an incredible godly wife that is not mentioned in this, and she's no doubt doing most of the heavy lifting, as my wife did with our children as well, as I w- we were serving. But still the presence of a father is so powerful in the lives of their children. You know, recently we were, uh, went back to New York. My daughter had asked my wife and I a couple of weeks ago to come and uh, help for a week. Her husband was gone. She's got two little ones, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And, uh, I mean, twist our arm, right? We get to go hang out with our daughter and our grandchildren. And uh, my granddaughter uh, Nick, nicknamed me Bapo. I was trying to teach her Papa. And when she was little, it came out Bapo, and then it stuck. So I'm Bapo. So I'm the only Bapo I know, but it's pretty cool. And so we go there, and, and now, uh, because we haven't been back for a few months uh, I don't know what the, the bedtime routine is now. Right, we're going to put the kids down. And my daughter is a tremendously godly woman. She's 31 years old. She loves Jesus with all her heart. She was a virgin when she got married. Filled with the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And what a tremendous mom she is. And I'm putting the kids down. And when I put my little girl down 30 years ago, I had a song each night that my wife and I would, you know, go back and forth to the kids. And I would sing over my daughter every night, the Lord bless you. And keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. And every time I would say you, the you's used a lot, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. I would touch the end of her little nose. She's two years old, she's three years old, she's four years old, she's five years old, all through the years. And I had another song for my, my son, a worship song, Take Me Past the Outer Court. And I would sing to each of, they each had their own worship song. And that's how we t- put him into bed and prayed with him each night. And so I'm getting ready to go put Tiberius down, which is my grandson. He's one and a half years old. And uh, I'm like, I don't know the drill. You know, when it's not your kids and you're a little out of practice, I'm a little rusty. And my daughter's like, well, 
you just sing him, sing Tiberius my song that you sang to me and Caleb's song that you sang to him. I said, he gets two songs? She said, he gets two songs. And both the kids get the two songs. And I realized that the, the investment of ministering to your children and then seeing that go forward. And my daughter, just in these last, this last year, she shared with me, I just really want to press into all that the Holy Spirit has for me. And, you know, prophecy, if you have four virgin daughters that prophesy, don't think of prophecy as just predictive, but prophecy can be um, just encouragement or insightful, and it also can be predictive. On the 4th of July, my daughter called us up on the 5th, and uh, she said, hey, I have to share with you this prophecy I had yesterday morning, and I wrote it all down, and then I thought, well, I'll get up and watch the news today. And this is the prophecy that she had. I saw the face of an angry man screaming and another image of a large crowd gathered for a parade. I have a feeling that something bad is going to happen in our world today. A great darkness, a great evil is spreading and has cast its shadow upon us. The cheerful songs of America and celebration feels like a sorrowful funeral to my spirit. I'm not afraid though. It feels like something bad will happen but God will be with those of us who have chosen him and his way. The darkness closes in, but his light is greater around us. There's a storm of human anger and rage upon us. We will hide under the peace covering of the Lord our King. I feel I shouldn't leave the house this day to gather in the streets because there is a plot against the crowds, and I feel warned not to be numbered among them. The next morning she woke up and watched the news to see about the shooter in um, Highland Park, the suburb of Chicago that shot six people. And um, Bobby uh, Crimo is his name, Bobby Crimo III, 21 years old, killed six people and wounded 24. It's the worst uh, shooting massacre in Illinois' history. And as we were talking about it afterwards, she's like, hey, I'm in New York. Why would the Lord give me something like this? We're just talking through it. Well, prophecy is given, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, 3. He who speaks prophesies, prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. And when she shared with her mom and I this prophecy, all three of those things happened to me. I was edified and built up by God's spirit. I was in, motivated to trust him more and I was comforted that God knows what's going on in our country right now. How about you? The reality that there is a darkness and there is an evil that feels satanic, the kind of hatred and vehemence that is spewing across our land. And it's wonderful to know that God sees it very well and he comforts his people by letting them know what's going on. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, 24, that if all prophesy and an unbeliever, an uninformed person comes in and he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Truly among you. The reality is, is that prophecy, when speaking forth the word of God, and it hits people's hearts, and you feel like the secrets of your heart have been revealed, See, it's one thing to be committed to your decisions about your, your day planner, your calendar. Like Paul the Apostle, determined that he's going to Jerusalem. Nothing's going to dissuade him from that. 
no encouragement from any believers under the power of the Holy Spirit, or if he just looks at it as trying to dissuade him from what God's Spirit has put inside of him. <laughs> in a funny note, I was going to Jerusalem and determined to get to Jerusalem one, uh, on an Israel tour, and I told my wife, hey, we've joined this church and this pastor, and we're going to Israel. My wife, the Lord just struck her heart with this reality that we weren't going to go. And she said, that's not going to happen. Now, it's awful discouraging to say, I just planned a tour to Israel that's not going to happen. And my wife smiled. She said, the Lord just spoke to my heart. You can plan all you want. You can work at this, but it's never going to happen. It was like 10 months away. I said, yes, sir, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So every time in the next month, he, you know, we, we are our passports up to date. And she's, she was, yeah, the passport's good. We're still not going. So we had this really banter, which was really fun, because my wife also just has these gifts of the Holy Spirit that these things, when, when it's that way, I should just give up. But I'm determined to do what I want to do. And we get to the airport, and I'm saying, see, we're here. Nothing stopped it. We're at the airport. She smiles. She says, don't know what to tell you. We're not going. So we're in the airport, Boise Airport, and they come over the loudspeaker, and they say, there are no planes going to Los Angeles from Boise, Idaho tonight because the federal budget has just been cut and now so many um, air traffic controllers have been laid off so they can only bring in so many planes and they have a priority system and we're not on their priority system. So you may not go to L.A. tonight. And I'm like, well, there's more one way to skin a cat. I'm going to go over to Portland and I'm going to try, you know, and I'm scheming. <laughs> and then... We get the report. And in Israel, the entire staff of the Ben-Gurion Airport, that's where everybody flies into Israel, has all went on strike. And nobody will be coming to Israel, no matter what you try to do, for the foreseeable future. And I look at my wife, she's like, that's telling you. <laughs> It's a beautiful thing to be comforted that God's spirit knows what is going on. And I want to finish this just quickly, this last two things that Paul also has some difficulties with. And that is, he was committed to the Gentiles and he was committed to the Jews. We'll read through it quickly in verse 15. And after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And when we had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He, Paul was totally committed to his Gentile ministry. So he did this incredible missionary journey. He comes back and he gives details about what God did. Now, when I talk about all the things that God is doing, it is not bragging. You're boasting in the Lord because you're saying, God did this. It's not that I did this. I got to be a part of it. You're a spectator. But the Bible says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's what Paul was doing. He was boasting about all the details about what God did. And God did an amazing thing among the Gentiles. The Jews, James, who is Jesus' half-brother, they said, oh, that's fine and dandy, great, but you're no longer out there among the Gentiles. You've come home 
to the legal Jewish revival that's happening in Jerusalem, and you've got to do some things because there's rumors about you that are untrue, and we've got to straighten it out. It says in verse 20, he's committed to also the Jews because of the actions he takes. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord. That was about what God did among the Gentiles. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and there are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the uh, customs. That wasn't true. It was false, but that's what they were all hearing. What then, verse 22, the assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. So, they said, we got a plan. Everybody has heard, Paul, that you're throwing Moses and the law under the bus. This wasn't true. He was sharing the gospel, but he was not telling them that the Jews were not to circumcise. That was only for the Gentiles. The Gentiles only had four requirements. Keep them away from things that have been sacrificed to idols, from things that have blood in them, not properly drained by the Gentiles, so meat that was not properly drained, and from things strangled, which once again, these are food things, and from sexual immorality, so a moral issue. One... Uh, part of the list is dietary, one is idolatry, and one is sexual immorality. Now, having said all that, you say, who cares? <laughs> we live in Thousand Oaks or Newberry Park in 2022. Well, I want you to know that the, the principles here are so important because you and I are going to meet people in the Christian life. Now, these thousands and thousands of Jews had believed in Jesus. But because they're Jewish and they're living in Jerusalem, they're Jews that are also still observing the law. We would see them as very legal, law-oriented Christian believers. Do you know anybody like that? Right? If you don't, you're going to meet some people like that. And what do you do about situations like that? So, this is a difficult thing because Paul's been out there among the Gentiles where he's living very free from these things and ministering to Gentiles. And now he comes back to the requirements. Now, you have to know what's going on inside of Paul's head so that you understand what he does right here because there are many commentators that say what he does here is absolutely wrong on principle. There are four guys that are going to, they've, uh, he wants them to be purified with them, pay for their expenses for their offering and shave their heads. It's a Nazarite vow. Now, just a few chapters earlier, Paul had just shaved his head because he had taken a Nazarite vow, so he was still doing many of these things. Now, having said that, when you hang out with Christians that are free with certain liberties, and you hang out with Christians that are very law-oriented, and you go back and forth between those two groups, you yourself can find yourself confused what to do. 
because you have your strong convictions and persuasions. Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 19. For though I am free from all men, meaning whatever your convictions are have nothing to do with me, I'm free from all men. I have made myself a servant to all. I put myself in your service that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. That's what he's doing here in Jerusalem. Verse 21, to those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, meaning he didn't become immoral when he was around these people, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might, by all means, save some. You and I live in these interesting times with lots of Christian diversity that may put us in pickles at certain times. And you might have certain freedoms that you have to limit when you're with this group, and you might have certain convictions that you want to uh, observe when you're with another group. But Paul says the goal is to serve other people, to serve other people, and to seek their winter hearts. That's the goal. But not to doubtful things. Paul goes on an extensive explanation of this in Romans chapter 14 and 15, where he says, you know, some people, they make food a big deal. You know anybody like that? They're, uh, they're a vegan, or they're a vegetarian, or they're, they're this, or they're that. And we learn in this, because I'm just... I'm, I'm an omnivore. I just eat anything that's put in front of me. I have no restrictions whatsoever. So when I hang out with people that have extreme dietary things and then they want to tell me about it and they, do you, do you eat MSG? I'm like, MS what? I don't, no, do you, do you eat things with this in it? And they go through this whole list. Of, I said, I, I eat everything that's put in front of me. But if you're a vegetarian, let, let's have a salad. Right? In my back of my mind, I think, I'm going to go have a steak after this dinner because this is not really dinner. But let's have a salad together. But my goal is to love them and to serve them, right? I want to love, I don't want to, I don't want to make, and this is what Paul says. There's two different reactions, you guys. The one is to despise someone and the other is to judge someone. The one that despises is a person that's very free like me. My temptation is to despise somebody that has no freedom. I just, in my mind, I go, Really? Are you for reals? I was having my first vegans over to dinner years ago when this started really getting traction with the millennials. And uh, it was a big deal. And so they were coming, and I told my wife, and I had to do some research on it. And I said, we're going to have burgers for the rest of the group that are coming, but you get some veggie burgers for these guys and two, two young men. And uh, so, but I didn't understand all the parameters that were necessary so that there's no cross-contamination. I didn't know these things. So I'm going to go cook the burgers, and the two guys get up, and they go, we're going with you. And I said, okay, great. They were going to come basically on overwatch to see what happens. So I'm flipping the burgers. I got, I got their, their, their things on the grill. I'm flipping the burgers, and I don't know. I can't touch their veggie burger with my burger spatula, right? This is the early days. I mean, this is like, you know, 20, 25 years ago. This is, I'm clueless. I live in Idaho. We shoot things. We kill things. We eat things. We, this is, anyway, and these were some SoCal uh, hippie Christians. 
with dreadlocks coming to have a vegan burger with me. Anyway, so I'm looking at them because I know that there's something serious going on because they're like this. And I'm, by the way, fast forward a few years, they are just steak-eating machines. It was, anyway, I know these guys. So I went over to touch their, I was going to flip their veggie burger. And I said, what do we do now? And they said, we need a different spatula. You cannot touch our veggie burger with you. I said, oh, oh, okay. I said, we can do that. No problem. All the way through it, I was, I want to serve them because they are, this was a big deal to them. And, and I know people today, and, and if you're here in, I don't mean to poke fun at you. I'm trying to illustrate a point. I can tell I'm going to get emails over this. <laughs> I, I, I can feel it. Like it's coming through like the vibes are attacking me on stage. Okay. So in my ignorance, I was trying to serve them. We got another spatula. They got their burgers. They were very happy. They were, actually, they were so happy once they got it. They're like, you know, the, the, <laughs> the redneck pastor from Idaho did not contaminate them. But the temptation for people that are not free is to despise those who are weak. That's, that's how they're described, as weak. But those who are weak, when they see, if they just came over and did not, I didn't know who they were and I just ate like a pig, they would judge me because that's their temptation to judge. So you, they're both wrong. To despise somebody is wrong. To judge somebody is wrong. The person that is strong despises the weak and the weak judge the person that is strong. You're somewhere and you go out for dinner and the Christians that you're with, you don't know them, they order a glass of wine. They have a glass of wine, they don't get drunk. The Bible does not forbid having a glass of wine or a drink, it forbids drunkenness. So you're in this situation. Now the person sitting there, you don't know, it's usually good to know before Maybe they're a recovering alcoholic, so you would never stumble them, and you would never take that glass of wine, because these are the three rules to Christian liberty. Three rules. Number one, is it good for me to exercise this liberty? Number two, will I stumble somebody? And number three, will I be brought into bondage if I pursue this freedom? These are the three, and there's three verses that go with it, but for the sake of time, I can't go into that. But the reality is, is that to be sensitive to people, because our goal is to walk in love and service. So if somebody, you know, I don't want to stumble somebody. If, they're, if food's a big deal or a glass of wine's a big deal, whatever, I don't want to stumble them. I want to walk in love. I want to build you up. I don't want you walking away saying that guy really tripped me up in my walk with God. Because love and servanthood is the dominant feature of the Christian life that God wants us to have. And so Paul does this, exactly what they say. He tells, I mean, they, they say, here's, this is what we want to do. This is how we want you to win these legalistic or these law-oriented Christians because they're living in Jerusalem. The temple's still functioning. Sacrifices are still happening. They're very much Jewish, but they're believing in Jesus. So it's a very complex situation. And Paul just does it. He just loves them. He said, I want to win them. Those who are under the law, I want to win them. Those who are outside the law, the Gentiles, I want to win them. When I'm, when I'm there and they're eating bacon, I don't give them the Jewish stink eye. Like, you know, that's not kosher. I just hang out with them. So, having said all that, 
the commentators that really throw Paul under the bus in this situation, to, to, in my perspective, are wrong. Because Paul is wanting to become all things that he might win some. It doesn't get him out of hot water anyway. He ends up taking a serious beating because he's simply there in the temple. And these Jews that had heard him out there preaching to the Gentiles in Ephesus, they come home for the, the special feast and they see him and they charge him with bringing a Gentile into the temple who was not circumcised, a guy by the name of Trophimus. And it wasn't true. But he still takes a serious beating in the, even though he's trying to walk in love. I want to be committed to the plans that God puts in my heart and open to other people that also have the Holy Spirit speaking into my heart. I want to be committed to my wife, my children, my grandchildren to walk in love and to build them up. But I want to be committed also to other people groups, those who are more legal oriented and those who are more liberal or uh, liberated or in their orientation. I can function between those two with great freedom and it doesn't bother me in the least. And it doesn't, I never give up my own convictions. I just can operate between the two and I'm not stumbled by, it's very, very difficult to stumble me. But other people, it's very easy to stumble them. And so you have to be sensitive to that. And you have to be, you know, kind-hearted and tender to actually put their preferences in front of yours because that's what it means to walk with the Lord and to love your neighbor as yourself. So may the Lord strengthen us through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit as we navigate these waters that at times can be quite tricky and quite dangerous and difficult to face. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your incredible love for us. Pray that you would build us up in your spirit, that you would strengthen us in your people, that we would have this um, dynamic life that you've put inside of us by your spirit. That we might resolve, Lord, in those commitments of our hearts to be empowered by your spirit, to only be committed to those things that are really of you. So, Lord, help us navigate that. I pray for each person that's here right now, and they have some hard things they're working through. Maybe they've been stumbled by somebody. Maybe they've been despising someone. Maybe they don't know what to do in their plans. Maybe their family's really suffering right now by their absence. And it's a, t a season to press in and to rebuild those relationships. Lord, I pray that your spirit would take all of your word and that it would accomplish the purposes for which you have sent it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Light in the darkness, I want hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day that I die. Whoa, 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 whoa. Fear in times of trouble, I keep my heart seeking you. Oh, I will keep my heart seeking you. Whoa, 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 whoa,
times of trouble I'll keep my heart seeking you I will keep my 